And we ask right now in Jesus' name that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. God, as we look this morning at the lost and the role of the Holy Spirit in the salvation, the reaching out to the broken, I pray, God, right now that in this room would be a renewed desire, renewed sense of urgency to not just be a Christ follower in words alone, but instead that we would see that every relationship, every context that we find ourselves is a place where Jesus can be glorified by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I thank you that your presence is here, that you are active, that you are speaking, and I pray, God, that each person would be open to receiving from you this morning, Lord, in Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome, and thank you for joining us. For those of you who are visiting with us, we want to say welcome, and thanks for being with us. We are going to continue on a series we started off a few weeks back called Mystical, and the whole idea behind the series was to talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, I I said to you in this series that um, it was going to be intentionally provocative. And what I mean by that is when we think about mystical, when we think about this whole concept of mystical, some of us can get kind of, um, we get a little afraid, like mystical. We don't necessarily think of Christianity and mystical, and that's a problem. Because everything about Christianity is mystical. And everything about what God wants for us by the power of the Spirit is what we are talking about. And so we have kind of set this series up for this kind of intentionality of saying, I want to push you into this whole idea of what what God wants. Let's recap what we talked about last week. Um, Last week, we talked about this idea of um, the unpardonable sin. Now, the unpardonable sin is this is this concept in scripture, in the Bible. Um, just real quick here. The uh, projector is a little tilted up. The top part of the slide is missing. And on the recap part, you're not going to care so much about it, but the title's very... So I don't know if someone wants to head up there to kind of maybe tilt the, screen, the uh, projector down a little bit so the top part of the screen is still there. Um, in the Bible, in the Gospels, there's this concept of the unforgivable sin. And as I said to you last week, the unforgivable sin is this idea that exists in the New Testament, but it's something that freaks us, freaks us all out. It's very controversial. It is probably the most controversial passage in the New Testament, and it is probably one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. We talked about this idea that whatever the unpardonable sin is, it was so important that the gospel writers talked about it three times. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, both, all three of them decided that this is what they're going to put in their, uh, in their Gospels. Because remember, the Gospels are for the uh, next Christians, for the next group of Christians, the next generations of Christians to kind of embrace faith. And so the unpardonable sin was so important that they had to put it in there. Just, uh, we'll get the screen where it freaks out. Don't worry about that. We're still in the recap mode, so we're okay. Um, We talked about with the unforgivable sin, the unforgivable sin wasn't a simple act. This is very important. And the reason this is important is because I grew up in a church context where I thought if I did this, if I said this, then God was never going to forgive me. And that was it. It's over. You know, it felt like a bit like the shell game. You go to a park and, you know, find the shell and there's three of them. You're You're like trying to find it out. That's what the unforgivable sin felt like to me. But when we looked at the context and we looked at the teaching of it, what we realized was the unforgivable sin was not a singular act, but instead it was a process. It was a posture of our spirits. And so we talked about this process of what unforgivable looks like. 
what does Jesus say? He says, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, resistance against the Holy Spirit. And I said to you that resistance of the Holy Spirit against the Holy Spirit is not one act, but it is a process. It is something that we say, you know what? I don't want to follow whatever God wants. And the Holy Spirit says, I love you, but there's something more. There's something better. And so he said, resistance becomes stagnation. Stagnation becomes toxic and toxic becomes death. And so in the very practical part of it, it looks like this, right? We talked about this entire series about fruit. Christians are meant to bear fruit. Jesus says, you will know my disciples by their fruit. A good tree bears good, tru- uh, good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. So the first symptom of, uh, of this idea of resistance to the Holy Spirit is fruitlessness. Now, here's what you need to understand, and this is important. Um, When we are talking about the Holy Spirit, what God wants to do is he wants to multiply. He wants to change us. And there is fruit with that, right? And I said to you, this series is all about this progression of truth about fruit. And so with that, fruitlessness is your first indicator that there's something wrong. Like, for example, we had a really bad cold season. And every time some of you got... um, Mary, I see you shaking your hand there. We're so glad to have you back. Please don't infect us. Um... Mary had a very severe cold, and we were praying for her, and we missed her completely. But many of you got a cold, right? And how do you know you get a cold? Sniffle, right? You got a sniffle, like, "Uh uh-oh, this is a symptom of something that is coming that you are not going to like, but hopefully it'll get through quickly. For some, not as quickly as, as others, but that's your symptom. Fruitlessness is your first symptom that something is wrong with your spiritual walk with God. Let me repeat that. Somebody tweet that. Fruitlessness is your first indicator that there is a problem with your spiritual walk with God. Because if you're not bearing any fruit, then you know that there's something wrong. The second part is stubbornness. What is the spirit trying to do? He's trying to change. He's trying to move you. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't need to change. I'm fine. I, I gave my heart to the Lord 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 10 days ago, whatever it be. I'm fine. You're not. And then the last part is spiritual death. And this is the part that we center in on with Jesus saying the unforgivable sin. Whatever this sin is, whatever this posture is, well, we know what it is. It's a stubbornness. It's a resistance against the spirit. It leads to spiritual death. Jesus says, you can curse the son of man. That will be forgiven. But blaspheming resistance against the Holy Spirit, this will never be forgiven. And the reason it'll never be forgiven is we become so hardened in our hearts and our spirits that we don't want, we don't even seek forgiveness. That's what we talked about last week. And so that kind of brings us all up to speed. And by the way, for some of you who email me or ask me, um, all our sermons, uh, audio and notes are on our website. So if you ever miss one, um, if you want to go back to kind of catch uh, a bit of the series there, you can. Or if you're having a problem falling asleep at night, I recommend that as well too. Um, It will put you right out. Okay, so that's what we talked about last week. Now let's kind of, we're getting close to wrapping this series up. Let me tell you where we're going. We're going to talk about the two roles of the Holy Spirit this week and next week. And mark this in your calendars. The 18th is going to be our healing service, our prayer service. So the 18th is going to be the service where we are going to be anointing people with oil and asking the Holy Spirit to do something miraculous. I'm just telling you that right now because I finally have the end in sight as far as the series goes. So that'll be the 18th. But this morning we're going to talk about the two roles of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at part one this week and we're going to look at part two next week, right? So what does the Holy Spirit do? I'm talking about the Holy Spirit a lot. What does he do? Right? What, what is his function? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he gives us, he lays out the two functionalities of the Holy Spirit. The first part of the Holy Spirit, the first function of the Holy Spirit is conviction. That's, that's the lost. 
In John chapter 16, verse 7 and 8 says this, But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Now, remember, just real quick here. John chapter 14, 15, and 16 is Jesus' last teaching before he's crucified. Because when we get to John chapter 17, he is in the garden praying. Right Now, why this is important is because Jesus thinks it's so important before he knows what's about to come to make sure his disciples understand the functionality of the Spirit. So John chapter 14, 15, and 16 are saturated with Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing he tells his disciples is when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. Well, the second thing that the Holy Spirit wants to do is then once he convicts the world of sin, once he moves a person into that relationship, then it's into the transformation part of it. In John chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, this is what he says. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And again, John chapter 15, verse 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes from me from the Father, he will testify about me. The second part we're going to talk about next week. Okay, so just to let you know, this week we're only going to talk about the first part of it because I need to unpack it in a way that makes sense. So, The primary function of the Holy Spirit is to move those outside of faith into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Therefore, our spirit-filled, spirit-led disciple is passionate about the lost. The first thing we learn about the Holy Spirit, the first thing that Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit is he is absolutely out of his mind, concerned, passionate, um, wanting to move in the lives of the lost. That's what he wants. And because of that, anybody who wants to be in step with the Spirit, in life of the Spirit, they are also concerned, passionate about the lost. And actually, I would say to you that one of the marks of a Spirit-filled disciple, of a Spirit-filled believer, is they are always looking for opportunities to share their faith. They're always looking for opportunities to, to, to partner with the Spirit in the work that he's doing in the world today. Now, One of the things we have to talk about before we kind of get to this part is kind of mistakes we make about evangelism. I came across this great article. Um, I couldn't find the author's name. It was one of those, um, you know, blog posts. And so um, they said there's five mistakes they make about evangelism. And I think actually the writer kind of gets it right. He gives five reasons, five things we kind of have gotten wrong about evangelism. First thing he says is evangelism is not imposing your beliefs. I think it's really important, actually, because what can happen is my beliefs are better than your beliefs, or my beliefs are right and yours are wrong. If evangelism becomes to telling people they're wrong or hammering them over the head with, with truths or what we perceive as truth, that's, that's a problem, right? The second thing he says is evangelism is not a personal testimony. Now, this one might kind of freak you out a little bit, and I actually would say to you, this one kind of was like, ah, are you sure? Because, ah. but then he explains it, and this is what he meant. He says, evangelism has become, or Christianity within North America has become so emotion-based. Here's what he means. He goes, today I feel saved. Tomorrow I don't feel saved. Tomorrow, uh, the next day God loves me. The next day God hates me. I'm going to the garden to eat worms. Right? So he says that what's happened is we've created this crisis moment faith that goes up and down, up and down. And when it's up, we're we're great, we're we're okay. But when we're down, we're like, wow. He goes, if that's our testimony, if that's what we're telling people about God, if that's our testimony about Jesus, 
That's not really what, that's not really what the gospel is all about. The third thing he says is evangelism is not social action or political involvement. This is actually great because the thing is, is that whatever government does, and there's a lot of conversations about it right now, um, act, you know, we can be politically involved, absolutely, of course, in a democracy that just makes us responsible citizens. But at the end of the day, no government speaks for God. No political party speaks for God. I've, I've, I've taught on this before. I think that there could be some ways of saying, well, I think this one might be closer aligned, but that's up to you to decide. But if we think that, you know, uh, uh, social media posts are yelling at people because of their political leanings, that's evangelism. That's a problem. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, and quite convincingly, that the church does better outside of culture rather than mesh within culture. The church does better outside of government than it does enmeshed in government. Now, you can argue with me on that, and any of you uh, students here, you know, poli-sci students and all that, we can have a conversation. But the point is simply this, is that no government is going to uh, advocate a morality that lines up with Scripture. It's not. And so political activism or social activism, like... Feeding the poor is part of what we are as Christ followers, but it's not just evangelism. If you say to me, well, you know, I, I went to the Rave Hope and I, and I served a meal, that's great. And that's what we should do. And we're going to do that again in March. We're, we're, we're going to go down there and we're going to serve a meal. And, and we, we will try to be as, as welcoming to the guests who come. But when, when, when I've been down there, when I've ever done these type of things, I don't get an opportunity to share with Jesus that often. It's just, you know, here's your meal. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's part of who we are. And matter of fact, it's, it's been part and parcel to, to what the church has been. And James, the brother of Jesus, says, you know, show me your faith. I'll show you my actions. What, what is true religion? Orphans and widows. Right? That's part of who we are. But it may not necessarily be evangelism. And especially in a culture today where everybody is looking to do things like that, we have to kind of think of ourselves, there has to be something different about the church. And the last one, oh, I'm sorry. Evangelism is not, uh, is not apologetics. Apologetics is a defense of faith, arguing back and forth. I love arguing. Um, I love the debates. I do. I really do. But I have to say to you, and, I, and I, I've said this before, those debates that you can have with somebody, it doesn't matter how great of an argument you have, the person doesn't fall to their knees and accept Jesus right there. No. They get angry. Uh, or, they, or they mock or, or whatever it would be. But it's not just simply head knowledge. And apologetics is important. And, uh, you know, we're going to be doing a series on world religions in, in the near future. Um, we're definitely going to be talking about how, what people believe and all that. I think it's important. But it's not really evangelism. It's, it's, it's part of the tools that we would use to share the gospel. But it's not necessarily evangelism. And the last one, I really want to kind of put a fine point aside. Evangelism is not dependent upon results. People say to me, well, I shared my faith with this person. And they said, no. That's it. What? Well, I, if they don't have Jesus or I haven't, you know, like, I'm no Billy Graham. I'm no, I'm no this, I'm no that, right? Like, the late Billy Graham, he said the same thing about his, his, his um, what he would do is that he just wants to share the gospel and people had to decide. That's really the point, right? That we just, we don't look to outcome-based faith. We just look to obedience to what God would call to us. So this is uh, kind of some mistakes of evangelism that we need to unpack, we need to kind of get rid of before we, we talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit and his part. In John chapter 16, verse 8, again, we read it before, but let me repeat. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin. Now, 
What's interesting about this word convict is that the reason John chose this word is because in the Greek, this word actually has a couple of tensions in it. I want to explain it to you. And just warning, there's going to be lots of words on the screen here in a second. The word convict, eleko, uh, comes from the drama of a courtroom trial. How many of you ever watched uh, Law and Order? That show Law and Order? Come on, put your hands up. Yeah. I, I used to get so excited when you hear the boom, boom, dun, dun, you know, right? I was like, yeah, okay, it's going to start. We don't watch it that often, but you know, there's something great about a courtroom trial. You know, I was like, oh, okay. Because basically what happens is there's two arguments, innocent or guilty. And both sides have to assemble the facts as best they can and present it. And the jury has to decide who has the better argument, right? And that's kind of, it, it's kind of fun, it's kind of exciting, but it's also... It's not really a great form of justice either because if someone who is wealthy has a great, uh, great team that can use uh, the nuances of, of, of the law to get them off, then it's like, well, is justice really served here? But that's a whole different conversation. But the word that uh, John uses is, is a word that talks about the courtroom trial. It's a word that is used to kind of describe the courtroom drama. It goes on to say this. It refers to what the prosecuting attorney does when he argues his case. He puts the defendant on the witness stand and begins to pile up on the evidence. Fact upon fact, witness upon witness, truth upon truth, slowly, exonerably, irresistibly building his case until finally the enormity of the evidence is so overwhelming that the judge is forced to say to the defendant, I find you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But there's a second part. Not only that, this word means to present the evidence in such an overwhelming fashion that even the defendant is compelled at the end of the trial to step up and say, I admit it, I confess, I am guilty. That never happens. But wouldn't it be great? If if the prosecution puts this this incredible uh, uh, case together and the defendant goes, wow, I didn't realize there was that much evidence. Um, actually, I'm guilty. Sorry, you know, I'm sorry to waste all your time here. I'm guilty. Now, what's important here is the word lego actually has two parts to it. The external, which is the evidentiary part of it, is like, okay, here's where you've fallen. But there's an internal as well, too. So that the person who is on the stand goes, oh, it's not just the truth, the reality of what I've done, but there's something internal within me that is telling me that, I've, I've, that, that I am guilty. So when Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to convict, it is both external and internal. And that's important because that's going to kind of help us to understand um, what he wants to do. The book of Acts is the book of, the, the book of Acts is really called the Acts of the Apostles. So if you come from a more of a traditional church background, you will have in your Bibles Acts of the Apostles. And actually that's a mistake. It should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit taking this fledgling Jesus movement and multiplying it across the Roman Empire. We're going to take a look at three encounters in the book of Acts because there's three different types of loss that I think the Holy Spirit wants to kind of talk to us about. The first type of loss is the devout. In Acts chapter 2 verse 5, we see this great encounter, right? This is the advent of the Holy Spirit, right? Christmas is the advent of Jesus. The day of Pentecost is the advent of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, 120 men and women in the upper room, tongues of fire, they roll out onto the streets and they're speaking in tongues. Now, before we get into the whole speaking in tongues thing, whatever you think about speaking in tongues, however you understand it, in the context the writer tells us is these individuals spoke in other languages. Now, why that's important is Acts 2.5 gives us a context. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. 
Now, why that's important is because, remember, uh, this is the time of Passover. People are still around. And so Jerusalem was, um, uh, it, it invited Jews from all around the world. But these are Jews from different cultures as well. They spoke different languages. So these 120 men and women spill out on the streets full of the Holy Spirit. And they are speaking in tongues. And each person who's there, like, how do they know this language? How are they praising God in this language? Verse 11, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done, right? So they're hearing this in another language. Look at verse 12. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. This is a fantastic question. Now, the reason it's important in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, it says they were devout Jews. Now, why that's important? These people understood the law. They understand Yahweh. They understand the, the, the history of the nation of Israel, which means that they understood what God required of them. But now look what Peter is going to say to them in the next verse, in verse 37. Peter's words pierce the hearts. Peter gets up and preaches this incredible Holy Spirit sermon. And they said to him and to other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Now look at verse 38 to 40. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Stop there. Peter is saying to devout Jews who understand the law, who understand Yahweh, who understand the nation of Israel, this is not enough to get you to stand before God pure and holy. This is not enough. You must repent. Remember the word repent? We talked about this. Repent is the word metaneo, right? Metaneo in the Greek, change in direction. It's a 180, right? At the Fluid Conference yesterday, my friend Dom Russo, who is a church planner in Quebec, which, by the way, needs another 500 church plants in Quebec because it's, it is there. But Dom Russo, when him and I first were talking about his church plant, I said to him, you know, like, what are you going to call your church? Uh, he goes, I'm going to call it the 180. I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. I can't steal that now, but that's really cool, actually, yeah. So he, call, he calls himself the 180 church, but the whole idea behind it is repentance, metaneo. A change in direction. And so what Peter is saying to these devout Jews, you have to change your direction because the direction you're going is not going to lead you towards God. And the devout today are filling our churches right now. The devout are people who understand religion, understand behavioral religion. This is what is be a good person, a bad person. And Peter's standing up on the day of Pentecost by the power of the Spirit saying, repent. You got to change direction because this this direction of of, of being a good person, of of knowing the rules, of all these things, it's not enough, right? So the first type of lost is the devout, right? And then verse, uh, second part of verse 39 to 40 there, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Devout is still spiritless, right? And this is what Peter's trying to tell them. You can be devout. You can follow the laws of Yahweh. You can have all of this, but you're still spiritless. And if you're still spiritless, that's not what God intended. The second type of law we see in Acts chapter 8. This is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. This is, a, uh, this is a great account of Philip. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the, the, down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Philip is walking along and all of a sudden an angel appears to him and says, hey, don't go this way, go that way. And Philip goes, well, okay, I'm not going to argue with the angels because they terrify me. And I may have wet myself a little bit here. So, okay, I'm going to do what the angel tells me to do, right? Because this is how they encounter the angel. So the angel says to him, Philip, I got a divine appointment for you. Listen. Philip's okay. Now watch this in verse 27. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia. Now, I want you to know something, Karen. Whenever I've been told this story, uh, the picture that was painted in my mind is of this, um, this African person sitting in a chariot reading the Bible. 
But the problem with that, uh, that idea is that if this person is prominent in the court of Ethiopia, he's not by himself. He has an entourage. He has bodyguards. He's the treasurer. He's the guy that's in charge of the money. He's going to have a whole group of people around him protecting him, which means Philip has to get close to this guy. He has got to navigate through this entourage and these bodyguards whose sole purpose is to kill anybody who gets too close to this very important person. This is what they did in ancient times. You did not go anywhere. You did not travel anywhere, especially if you're this prominent without bodyguards because it was a violent culture. Now watch this. So he started out, he met the treasure of Ethiopia. In verse 29, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk, walk um, along beside the carriage. Now, if you see this person in the carriage surrounded by this group of people with these very large individuals with sharp swords and spears, and God says, hey, go eavesdrop. Philip really has to believe this is the Holy Spirit, right? He's got to go, okay, I'm going to believe this. Now, watch this, because this is the part that's kind of interesting, right? Um, and this is the part I never understood until I understood the context, right? Look at verse 30. Philip ran over. Why do you run over? Because if you stroll, someone's going to kill you, right? So Philip is, he's, 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 he's running past these bodyguards. He's running past this crowd to get to the individual that Jesus, the, uh, the Holy Spirit wants him to speak to. Now watch this. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone instructs me? So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told the good news about Jesus. So Philip was walking along. The Holy Spirit says, no, no, go this way. Sorry, the angel of the Lord said, go along this way. And he's walking along. The Holy Spirit taps Philip on the shoulder, says, see that guy over there? Philip didn't know where he was reading from, by the way. Just the Holy Spirit says, go over there and, and just walk alongside the carriage. As Philip walks along, it's like, oh, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. This is great because prophet Isaiah is a slam dunk. Right, Because the prophet Isaiah talks about Jesus. There's more prophetic passages about the Messiah in Isaiah than any other prophetic book in the Bible. So this this person's reading along. He's reading out loud. And Philip goes, oh, can I help you with that? Who's going to teach me? Well, funny you should ask. Uh, Let me tell you. Have you heard about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth? Have you heard about uh, what took place in Jerusalem uh, a few months back about this guy being crucified? Well, let me tell you the rest of the story here. And then, of course, the rest of the story is Philip leads him to faith, and then he baptizes him, and the Holy Spirit takes Philip away. That's the second type of loss, the curious, right? Those who are curious about faith but don't really quite know. Now, here's the third type of loss, and we see this in Acts chapter 17 in Athens. In Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now, the Greek culture had gods for everything. You're losing a little hair up top? We got a god for that. You need a little bit of money? We got a god for that. Single, looking to mingle? We got a god for that as well too, right? We've got gods for everything, right? And so Paul is sitting there and he's looking around and he sees these statues upon statues. As a matter of fact, the main road into Athens, historians tell us, was lined by idols. Hermes, Athena, Zeus, Aphrodite, like, and, and then other gods as well too, right? The Romans were very smart in the sense when they would, when they would conquer a culture, they let the culture keep their religion. It's one way of pacifying them and saying, hey, we've taken everything, but you're going to have your God still. And for most of them, okay, we can live under your oppressive rule. That's why the Jews still had the temple and still had their faith, because even though they were conquered by the Romans. So Paul is sitting there, and he sees all these idols, and he's greatly troubled. 
Because here's a culture that doesn't even have a conversation about, uh, about faith. They're actually at the other direction. They're, uh, they're having a conversation about how much faith, how much religion. Now look at verse 18. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, Epicureanism is about pleasure, right? Epicurean philosophy was eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Stoicism is on the other part, and Stoicism was more of a mental. If you want to think of a Stoic, think of Spock, right? It's, it's very logical, and it's using, it's using your brains to come up with solutions for problems, right? So Stoicism would be on the opposite spectrum. And Paul is having a conversation of Jesus and his resurrection, and they're both looking at him going, really? Raised from the dead? Right? Nah, come on. Was he a demigod? He couldn't be God. He's a demigod, right? And so they're having this conversation, and what they, what they come up with is he's a babbler. Now watch this. In verse 32, it says this. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. This is the third type of loss, is people will either be contemptuous about whatever it is you're talking about, or they'll be saying, you know what? Let's have a conversation about this later. I have to process a little bit what you told me here. Now, I'm going to bring these three together to show you how the Holy Spirit works in all three in these situations. Um, we have the three types of lost, right? So the devout is they know God, understood the requirements of religion, but not what Jesus and the Holy Spirit had in store. So if we were to say on the spectrum here, and I've done this before back in the summertime when I did a different series, but let's just say on a scale of one to ten, one being farthest away from God, 10 being in a relationship with God. In a scale of 1 to 10, where would we put the devout? And I would say to you, we would put the devout probably somewhere around a 5. Because they have the basics of religion, right? They have the basics of religion. And so when we have a conversation with the devout, to move them from a 5 to a 10, it's not that difficult, this is where I'm having conversations in the church today to move them from devout to spirit-filled. This is what I'm trying to do with this series is move them from devout of, okay, you understand the basics of being a good person and all that. That's fine. But that's not what God intended. I want to move you now to spirit-filled. So for the devout, we start off at a five and we would say we can move them to a 10 by the conversation. That's what Peter did. Remember, Peter gets up and preaches a sermon to devout Jews. And he, goes, he moves them from a 5 to a 10 by the power of the Spirit. Now watch this next category. For the curious, I would say, we, move them, we start them off at a 4. I think, I think it's really interesting that our culture is very interested in spirituality. As a matter of fact, they're very interested in the supernatural. I had one conversation with a, with a young guy about ghosts. He goes, what does what is Christianity think about ghosts? I'm like, oh, that's actually interesting. Let's talk about that. And we went back and forth. And he said to me afterwards, he goes, I've never had anybody explain to me ghosts the way you did and, and the context in scripture. Because the supernatural realm, I'm really interested in it. I'm like, I wish more people in the church were too. But okay, let's, let's keep talking about this. And he said, you know, I, I didn't know where to put this whole idea of the supernatural realm in Christianity. Because Christianity seems like good people, you know, nice people. He might as well have said boring people, right? And, and I'm like, okay, this is the problem with Christianity. Is we've presented it as this, this facade of we want to be good people doing good things. We are actually supernatural beings filled by a supernatural God. 
And so to move the curious, I'd say we start off at number four, and through different conversations, we move them to a 10, right? The Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading the book of Isaiah, which means he knows there's something more out there. He just needs someone to come alongside of him and take him from the four to the 10. Now watch this. The people of Athens, right? The idols everywhere. They, I would say to you, we're starting off at a number one with them. They are as far from God as you possibly can imagine, right? Stoicism doesn't even acknowledge any type of, of, of gods. They're all about mental. They're all about, you know, I'm going to use logic and reason to overcome these issues. So they don't even think about a god. So they are, what you, for all intents and purposes, atheists, right? So when we talk about the people of Athens, we're talking about a number one. But here's the problem, okay? We don't actually move them to a 10. What, is it, what, is it, what does the scripture say? Come back and let's talk about this later. The Stoics and the Epicureans did not fall to their knees and say, okay, Paul, we believe you about Jesus. Instead, what they believed was, I need another conversation. Or I need another several conversations. Or I need another conversation that's going to keep going on and on. Now, with them, you may never get them to the 10. And I would say to you, that the context we find ourselves in the world today, predominantly it's the Athens. It's the people with religions everywhere. It's idols everywhere. Right? I'm having more and more of these type of conversations. Well, that's good for you that you believe that. This is what I believe. And of course, you have to respect that. You go, okay. But you have to say them in as, as nice and gentle way. By the way, I don't do nice and gentle that well. But uh, in a nice and gentle way, okay, I, I get that. But I just, I just want to give you this last thing to think about. Because, you know, I think that perhaps your, your way of looking at it might be a little bit skewed. Right? But the, with the people of Athens, you start off with a 1, but you may not move them to a 10. All you're going to do is hopefully move them along the spectrum. And that's the idea behind what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Is he wants to take the devout, he wants to take the curious, and he wants to take the idols everywhere, the, the saturated supernaturals, and wants to point them towards Jesus. Point them by the power of the Holy Spirit to Jesus. Now let me show you something here. When we, when we talk about the book of Acts, what I need you to understand something is the book of Acts is the birth of the church. I'm going to say this right now, but it's going to be fleshed out next week. The church is the Holy Spirit's idea. And so when we look through the book of Acts, all we see is the Holy Spirit coming alongside, helping, moving towards what? Helping this group of Jesus followers expand into this Roman Empire. So when Paul goes to Philippi, which was was a predominantly Roman culture, hardly any Jewish people at all, he speaks to, to them in a certain way of saying, okay, this is who Jesus is. But when he goes to Corinth... There are many Jews there, but there's also other things happening there as well too. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he takes the gospel and puts it into a context that people understand. The video you saw at the very beginning there is an organization called Open Doors USA. It's a fantastic organization. And by the way, if you like our Facebook page, cough, cough, like our Facebook page, um, I'm going to be putting videos from Open Doors USA every day this week. What Open Doors USA does is they take testimonies and stories of faith happening around the world and they show it to the rest of the world so you can see what's going on. The story of Fatima and what took place with this, this young woman who wanted to blog for Jesus and share faith via online, this is not unique. And I would say to you that in the Middle East right now, there is a revival taking place that you would not even believe, right? So in, in Islam, in Muslim culture, they believe in visions, 
right? They, they pray for Allah for visions. Why? Because Muhammad, right? And again, when we do the world religions thing, we'll go over this. He asked for a vision from God and he got a vision from the angel Gabriel in this cave, if you believe his, 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 his part of it. Spoiler alert, if you actually believe he even existed, but that's a whole different conversation. So they believe in visions. And because they believe in visions, they ask for visions. Uh, I've mentioned this guy before, Nabil Qureshi. Right? Nabil Qureshi wrote a fantastic book, um, uh, um, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. A fantastic book. But what the point is this, is that in the Middle East right now, we are hearing missionary reports of people having visions of Jesus. And seeking out missionaries going, okay, I was praying to Allah, but this guy Jesus showed up. We know who Jesus is according to the Quran. He is a prophet. But he's not God. So why is he showing up? And they have these conversations right now. There are story after story coming out, but not just within the Middle East, around the world. But the problem is the only place we don't see it happening, right here. Because somehow, some way, we have disconnected sharing our faith and, and, and living with the life of the Spirit from, from whatever it looks like in, in this context today. So we see this happening around the world. And I say to you, there is no reason why the Spirit can't do it right here, right now. Remember I said to you at the very beginning of the series, I was going to show you how to pray for the lost. Now, I'm going to show you something here. And this is not in the Bible. Well, it is, but I, I'm, I'm going to quantify. I like lists. Even when I argue, I, my, and my wife hates this, by the way, I always say, okay, first of all, because I have a list of things I want to get through, right? She doesn't work that way. And she's just, she, whenever I say, first of all, or I say, okay, A, B, she's like, okay, stop. <laughs> I don't need your list. What do you want to say? Okay, fine. I'll tell you what I want to say. Right? I, I, I like lists, right? So what I want to show you is a way you can partner with the Holy Spirit for the lost. Now, here's the reason I'm saying this to you. Every person in this room, every person in this room has people in their lives, whether family, friends, acquaintances, who don't know Jesus. But you also don't know what to do either. You're stuck. Right? You, have, you start a conversation with, uh, about faith and it's like, it goes a totally awful direction. Like, oh, okay, 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 okay. I, I messed that one up. Right? And, you, and you just don't know what to do. Remember I started off this teaching this morning. I was saying to you, the primary thing the Holy Spirit wants to do is move the lost into a, into a, into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. That's what he wants to do. And what I think many of us have done is we've talked about evangelism as in apologetics. Well, I'm going to read this book on how to share my faith. Nothing wrong with that, but it's only part of the story. And remember we talked about this at the very beginning as well. And please forgive me for those who may be joining us this morning for this teaching. But I said at the very beginning of this teaching was, is that what we've done with Christianity is we made it behavioral. And so when we mess up, people around us go, well, you're a hypocrite. Well, you don't believe in God. How can you believe in God and do that, say that, be that? And we're like, <laughs> sorry. Why? Because we've, we, we have said to people, oh, it's about acting good or being good or bad. No. But if that's what the world thinks, that's what we presented to them because we have totally messed up the conversation. So I want to give you an, a way of thinking about how to share your faith without actually sharing your faith. Okay, let me I'll explain to you. Step one. Remember I like lists? Step one. Releasing the spirit. Here's what I want you to do. 
praying every day that the Holy Spirit will reveal God internal and external to the person you're thinking of. This is what I want you to do. And I actually, in my first, so I go through about 11 drafts before I preach a sermon. Draft number three, I had it in, in, in brackets there by releasing the Spirit. I had brackets three to six months. I took it out. I'm like, ha, ha, ha. But the point is this. Before you even talk about Jesus, before you even say Jesus' name, make sure you're saying this person's name to the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say three to six months is because you just want the Holy Spirit to just uh, wreck this person's life. And I, I, and I mean that not in a physical way, although that could happen. But what I really mean is that you need the Holy Spirit to kind of find that, that, that gap in the armor. Whatever their arguments are, whatever it is they've, they've, they've put up against God, you just need the Holy Spirit, right? You want to love the Holy Spirit? He, one of the metaphors of the Holy Spirit is water. We've talked about this. Water will find a crack and it will crack it open. It, it will absolutely do that, right? And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do, right? People have created this armor against God. The Holy Spirit's going to take a hammer. And all he needs is a little sliver of light. And he will get there. So what I want you to do is before you even start sharing Jesus, before you say, you know, anything, just focus the Holy Spirit upon this individual. And when I mean focus the Holy Spirit on this individual, I mean every day. Please, please, please don't be one of those people who say, well, I prayed the Holy Spirit on this person once. That's got to be good enough. If you're really passionate about this person knowing Jesus, it's nowhere near good enough. And I want you to know something. I am practicing this in my own life right now. So as you guys know, I deliver milk. And because I deliver milk, I get to meet lots of people and get to have those conversations. Where there's an individual God's placed in my, in, 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 in my um, not in my way, but um, I, I just, whenever I have this conversation with this individual, they are very spiritual, but they're very anti-faith, anti-Jesus. And when they found out I was a pastor, well, it's on. So I'm, I'm in this health food store delivering milk and we're having conversations back and forth about, about the Bible and all that. And people are like, one time we were sitting there, we we're talking about faith and there's a line of people, you know, waiting to get to the cash. I'm like, um, I can, you know, I just, no, no, I, okay. If you get fired, don't blame me. Anyways, so this individual is my spiritual experiment. And what I mean by that is that I'm praying for this individual every day and not just once a day. I'm, every time I think of this individual, I pray, Holy Spirit. Just break through that, just those arguments, the hurt, whatever it would be. For some people, you have to pray that, they, that these people would forgive the church for hurting them. I've encountered those. Sometimes you have to pray that, you know, they have created these arguments against God or against, against faith, you, whatever it would be. So three to six months, and again, I just use it arbitrarily, but all I really want you to do is just think to yourself, I need to be praying the Holy Spirit in this person's life. Because what's the Holy Spirit saying? I want this person to be in a relationship with Jesus too. So you partner with the Holy Spirit. That's step one. Step two is, is concurrent. I, I kept that bracket in there. Every day seeking the Holy Spirit's refinement in your own life. Maybe one of the reasons why this person doesn't really believe your testimony is because they don't really believe Jesus in you. And so what you need to do, what I need to do, is I need to pray the Holy Spirit refining me. And maybe that means that I come along to this person and I say, you know what? I'm sorry, I may have presented, I may have said, I may have acted, right? So in this time that I'm praying for this person, I'm also asking the Holy Spirit to refine me as well. I'm asking the Holy Spirit just to kind of say, to, 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 move, 
to work in my life as well. Before I'm actually, because you know what that does? Is it says, I, I care about this person. I want to know Jesus. But I also care that I'm the right kind of person to share Jesus too. And that's the Holy Spirit's job, which we'll talk about next week. Spoiler alert. And step three, look for the spiritual opening. Um, just let the Spirit guide you. I, I honestly don't have any more than that. Right? Because all three types of loss, right? Whether it's the devout, whether it's the curious, or whether it's the spiritually saturated, the idols everywhere, just uh, wait for the Holy Spirit to kind of give you the opening. And I don't know what that looks like. I really don't. And I, I want to quantify it to you in some way, shape, or form. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. So remember we started off talking about his part. Let's talk about our part now. There's only one side for our part. This is it. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We've talked about this already. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the devout, and all Judea, the curious, and Samaria, idols everywhere, and to the ends of the earth. This is our part. What does Jesus say to his disciples? The fields are ripe. I just need God to send the workers. There are people out there that are having conversations, whether they're devout, whether they're curious, or whether they're idols everywhere. And all the Holy Spirit's wanting, someone go have a conversation with them. Somebody be in their lives. Somebody worry more about the state of their spiritual life than whether people think you're cool or not. Or whether people think you're hip enough or, or, or you're one of those Jesus people. If we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, there is no way that we have people in our lives that we're not just saying, Lord, that they would understand. And what are you saying to the, saying to the Holy Spirit about them? They just would know Jesus. That's it. You're not telling them that you want them to get off of drugs or, 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 or get out of this relationship or get another job or do better in school. These are not all bad things. But what's the Holy Spirit want to do? He wants them to know about Jesus. That's it. And how he does it, how he accomplishes it, will blow your mind. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Uptown Community Church, we are a mustard seed. I talk about this all the time. We are a small church that's planted the ground, but we are watered by the Holy Spirit. In your updates, it says, we're not here to entertain you. You're not here to perform. That's kind of what we are as a church. But whatever we are as a church, it will be by the power of the Holy Spirit or nothing at all. I'm done playing church. I'm done trying to entertain or juggle or, you know, look at a lamb or look at this or, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm done. Because that can entertain you. That might engage you for a little bit, but it doesn't transform you. We want this church to be a place where the Holy Spirit and whatever that is there. Um, we want this place to be a place where people can encounter the Holy Spirit in their lives. You're all distracted, so close your eyes. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, I got a piece of homework for you. No one looking around. Are you ready? Holy Spirit, right now, place a name in every person's head right now, of a person they need to release the Holy Spirit on right now. The Holy Spirit's just going to put a name in your name, in your head right now, of a friend, 
family, coworker, student, your homework, should you choose to accept it, is you are now going to pray the Holy Spirit will be unleashed upon that person. And you are not going to stop praying for them until they come to relationship with Jesus or you're dead. That's your job. That's it. I want you to find this person, to think about this person, and I want you every day, when the first thing when you wake up in the morning, Holy Spirit, go get them. Holy Spirit, speak to them. Holy Spirit, break through the arguments. Holy Spirit, break through the pain, the suffering, the, the hurt, whatever it be. Holy Spirit, please. Don't own the outcome. Just be obedient. Let God do the rest. And I believe if people in this room do this, if we actually take this seriously, what the Bible says, then we will see lives transformed of those closest to us. What's the Holy Spirit want? He wants to move people into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. What are you doing? You're partnering with what he already wants. Holy Spirit, I thank you. I thank you that as Jesus said that you have not let us orphans but instead you've placed your Holy Spirit within each and every one of us. And Holy Spirit, I partner with you. I pray for this person you place on my heart right now. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would release the Spirit upon this individual right now. And God, I pray that each person in this room who has gotten a name from you right now would from this day forward until this person, until this individual becomes a Christ follower, I pray that every day we would release the Holy Spirit upon this person. God, faith is supernatural and forgive us for not accessing or, or, or being a part of that supernatural process. Spirit, there is nobody that is beyond you. There's nobody that you can not get to. And I pray that you would find us faithful and obedient. Faithful and obedient, Lord. That's what we choose to be. And we give the outcome to you. Whether it's the devout, the curious, or idols everywhere. The three types of loss, God, we give them all to you. And we believe in the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. To change, to transform, to get to this person's life. God, I thank you that you've heard us. I thank you that you're partnering with us. I pray maybe, God, that faith would rise up within us. And Lord, I pray right now. God, I, I you just, Holy Spirit, you just whisper to me this right now, and I want to speak this to somebody in this room or, or several people in this room. In this room are individuals who have loved ones who are not Christ followers, and there is a spirit of discouragement on those people right now. The enemy has whispered to them that this person will never give their life to Jesus. They will never have that encounter of faith, and we have begun to believe those lies, and that lies has, has, has bled into other parts of our lives. And to those people in this room right now, in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray you would just encourage them right now. You would remove the enemy's lies from their lives. Nobody is beyond your grip of grace. Whatever barriers, whatever walls, whatever arguments, whatever it is, Lord, I, Holy Spirit, I pray right now, you'd be released. You would move, you would change, you would transform. And Holy Spirit, we ask for forgiveness collectively and not believing in your power. 
thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. And I pray, God, that tomorrow morning, each one of us would be praying for these individuals you put in our minds and Tuesday and, and so on and so forth, Lord. And that we would start hearing testimonies that at our next baptism service, we would hear stories of people who've encountered you because of the faithfulness of those around them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.